previously on Rule Breaker Investing. Hi, David, writes Darren Pryor. As a deep value investor, each time I see your weekly stock picks from the various Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Stock Advisors subscriptions, I literally choke and freeze on some of the nosebleed valuation levels, only to find that I either dismiss them or jump in way too late after summing up the courage to jump in, mostly on the faith that they've been carefully chosen by yourself and your team. Both of these reactions have caused me to miss far too many opportunities out of rational fear disguised as sensible decision-making. To help with my confidence, I'm wondering if you might devote a podcast session to exploring past successful picks and highlighting how pricey they too were at the time of your recommendation, either by price to sales, price to earnings, market cap, whatever you feel is the best way to highlight that. Despite their valuation back then, today they've proven to be brilliant picks. Darren, thank you very much. That's a great idea. I think we're going to do that. Sometime this summer, I'm going to have an episode. Let's call it, Where Were They Then? And we're going to look at some of our better stock picks in Motley Fool history and give out the valuations and some of the traditional metrics where those stocks were trading back then. We'll be handpicking, of course, some of our big monster winners to know that despite looking dramatically, crazily, horribly overvalued relative to how most of the world saw them back then, indeed, these stocks went on to be the best stocks better than any of the other performers. So I bet I'll have some of our talented analysts in and we'll tell the story of some of those nosebleed valuations in the days of your yes to embolden you, Darren Pryor, and your ilk to become more and more foolish. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. So, the show that we have for you this week, first of all, I want to note that it was taped three weeks ago. Uh, at the time that you're listening to this, I'm probably in Hong Kong. But as my producer Rick Engdahl and I have done, we have delivered a fresh podcast every single week since we launched the show in July of 2015. This week is no exception, but it would have been really hard for Rick, who recently had his wisdom teeth out, and me, who's in Hong Kong, to actually do this show for you otherwise. So, we thought ahead, and we thought, what's a topic that we could do as an evergreen show. It should work for all time, not just for this week or this time. And so, yeah, you heard it at the top of the show. It's Where Were They Then? Just Darren Pryor, just as you requested that we do a podcast like this one, and I said, that's what I'm going to call it. That's exactly what I have for you. And I have my friend Jim Mueller joining with me to help talk through Where Were They Then? and draw some lessons together on this week's podcast. Jim, welcome. Hey, David. Jim, when did you first come to Fool.com? Jeez, back in 2004, 2003, something like that. And that's interesting because one of the stocks we'll be leading off with today when we talk about where were they then was from that very year. Yeah, wish I'd bought it then. <laughs> well, it, it has been an amazing performer almost any year since the good news runs. But, Jim, when did you come on full time then at, here in Alexandria, Virginia? So, full time, I came in October of 2007. Wonderful. So, it's been 
almost 12 good years together, and I think we've been working together on Motley Fool Stock Advisor about uh, that long, from uh, the very even, first day? Even a year and a half or so before then, too. Oh, wonderful. So, you've watched some of these companies grow up. You've watched me grow up. I've watched you grow up. We've grown older together. And grayer. Helping to run <laughs> Motley Fool Stock Advisor. Well, you know, when Darren dropped his note in that May mailbag, I thought, where were they then? It would be a good title for this, because basically, it's worth looking backward at some of the biggest winners we've ever had as investors at The Motley Fool and reminding ourselves, to Darren's point, that the actual valuation metrics of those stocks at that time do not exactly conform to what people learn from their National Association of Investing Clubs manual or what Benjamin Graham said. Or I think it's more the rule breaker homebrew that we have um, helped create and that we sup on here at The Motley Fool. That was kind of the way. To find these stocks, yeah, those traditional metrics uh, often are very high, uh, and it, it's it it's scary if you've learned how to be a value investor to buy something that looks way overpriced. Uh, so we're going to talk about three different metrics here. Uh, we'll we'll give you I'll give you the historical numbers on on these three. The first one is the P/E ratio. That's the very common price to earnings ratio, and almost always that's talking about the current share price divided by the um, earnings per share over the last four quarters. Right. If there were any earnings if per share. If there were any. In any, some yeah. cases. So, it always yes. has to, um, if, if it comes up on like Yahoo or Google Finance or something, and it says a negative, ignore it. There were, there were losses that year, right. and it's not a, not a valid measure. So, I'm glad you're defining your term. I like to do that on the show. I know you have two more you're about to define, but let's just give a quick example. So, if a company performs over the course of, let's just say, 2019, and there are four quarters, and each quarter it earns $0.25 cents per share in earnings, that would be $1 per share by the end of the year. And if the stock was trading at $28 a share, that would be a price-to-earnings ratio of 28, right? The numerator is the share price, 28, and the denominator is the earnings per share. And this is the most basic, most often used valuation multiple. Yeah, and, and these multiples are handy and because they're quick and dirty ways of looking at modeling a company. What is the company worth? Um, they're they're handy and they give you a quick sense. And if you're using a quick screen to to, to screen out companies that are either have zero earnings or have uh, not enough earnings for their price, then yeah, that's good. But I wouldn't use them as the deciding factor. There's a lot more as as we'll get as we get into these companies, we'll learn there's a lot more to it um, than that. Yes, and I know our next ratio helps when there are no earnings. Right. But before we move on to that one, I just want to say that you know it is a good metric. The price to earnings ratio, when applied in the right circumstances, it can be helpful to compare one stock against another, maybe within the same industry, or as we do with market caps, you know, maybe even across different industries. It's helpful to see that one company is trading at 33 times earnings, assuming there are good normal earnings, and another one is at seven times earnings. And there's some learning there that we can have as investors. Yeah, I for one, if they were in the same industry, I'd certainly want to know why that difference existed. Right. And I think the default assumption often made traditionally is that you'd always want to buy that stock that's at seven times earnings rather than pay up for that one that's crazily trading at 33 times earnings. Most people just default to low price-to-earnings ratios. Yeah, and that historically has shown to be a good way of doing well in the stock market. 
All right, so that's the price to earnings ratio. We're going to be presenting five companies this week in Where Were They Then? And Jim, you'll be taking us through these three valuation metrics for each of the companies as we talk and learn together. What's the second valuation metric you'll be presenting? So, as you said, this one's good for when a company doesn't have any positive income. Uh, this is the price to sales ratio. And this is, uh, again, the price of the company, in this case, the market cap. Uh, divided by the last four quarters worth of revenue, total revenue, the sales that the company is generating, and this is usually a much smaller, usually a much smaller number than the PE ratio. Right. So, so quick example again: if a company, we're going to use market cap here as you yep. specified, Jim. So, if a company has a market cap of let's say two and a half billion dollars, and last year it had one billion in sales. Previous twelve months, that would be a price to sales ratio of two point five. I'm glad you're making the math easy for us, David. Well, you know, I like to keep big round numbers in my head. Uh, since I never really did take higher calculus, I went the AB calculus route, <laughs> senior in high school, and then I'm like, I'm out. I mean, I love math and I love baseball statistics, but once we start getting really abstract, the the slope of curves, it starts. I I get lost, Jim. Yeah. Well, the good thing about investing is you don't need all those higher maths. It, it really is true. Sometimes people make jokes about the elaborate uh, equations that they've developed to decide where a stock price is going to go. and There are lots of funny um, subscripts and superscripts and crazy symbols. That's not me. But price-to-sales ratio is me. I really like that, that particular measure, because it applies for all companies, whether they have earnings or not, because you're just looking at the revenues. And again, most people would traditionally, Jim, favor companies with a low price-to-sales ratio. If one company has a billion sales, and its stock is trading at a $10 billion market cap. That's a 10 times price sales. The other has the same billion sales, and it's just at a $3 billion market cap. That one looks a lot, quotes, cheaper, like a better bargain, like the stock that you should buy. Why pay up for this crazy one that's at 10 times sales? Again, I would say, if they're in the same industry, yeah, go go with the cheaper one generally. But try to figure out why that difference is. But if they're in different industries, the PS ratio could be completely different for the two different industries. So, there might not be any correlation or reason to favor one or the other. Yeah. And toward the end of the episode, we'll be drawing some lessons from these five case companies we're going to cover. And I'm going to preview at least one of the lessons is going to be the importance of growth. So, sometimes what's being missed by people who just want really low P-E ratios or low P-S ratios is they're not noticing the actual growth rate of the companies themselves. Because after all, if a company's double or tripling in size rapidly, you could see why you might want to pay up for that expensive stock. And that's what bedevils a lot of, especially, I would say, newer investors. Yeah, the market does uh, reward companies that are growing uh, more quickly and faster and at higher rates with higher um, multiples and higher market caps. Great. So, Jim, you have a third ratio you're going to be rocking this episode. Now, this one isn't quite as simple as the price-to-earnings ratio or the price-to-sales ratio. But it's the same basic concept. Um, This one's called EV over EBITDA. And let me break this one down a little bit. EV is like price, except it also so that the market cap, but it also includes the total amount of net debt that the company has. In other words, it's the price a buyer would have to pay in order to buy the company. And EV stands for enterprise value. Right, I forgot that part. Um, yes, and so um, if someone wants to come in and buy a 
company that's trading at, at the market at $2 billion and it has $500 million in debt, then they would actually have to end up paying $2.5 billion because that's the enterprise value for the that's company. That's right. In a sense, they're buying that $2 billion company and that $500 million in debt. So, the enterprise value accounts for both of those things. So, that's the numerator, EV. What about EBITDA? EBITDA is a kind of free cash flow. It's a cash flow-based number taken off the income statement rather than cash flow statement. And it's a popular metric uh, in uh, analysis in Wall Street. Uh, Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's partner, doesn't like it very much. He calls it a rather crude term. Uh, but uh, it's the letter stands for EBITDA, E-B-I-T-D-A, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. The DNA are actually non-cash expenses that the company has to account for, the aging of their, uh, of their infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, the buildings and the furniture and all that stuff. Uh, before interest and before taxes, that's basically operating income, what the company earns from all its operations, EBIT. Um, and then they just ba- uh, add back in those two non-cash uh, expenses to get more of a cash flow based uh, look at the earnings of the company. Right. So b- before we talk about that ratio altogether, let's just focus again on EBITDA. So some people, as you mentioned, are kind of cynical about it. Why does it even exist? Forget about enterprise value. Why does that exist as a measure that people look at? Because there is no agreed upon definition of free cash flow. Uh, there are many different kinds of free cash flow. And, and free cash flow, is, remember, is the, co- the the amount of money the company could return to its shareholders if it wanted to pay it all out after it had reinvested in its own business to keep where it is. Now, companies don't pay it all out because they want to reinvest and grow the business, uh, or they could use some of it to pay down debt or, or a whole bunch of other reasons. Uh, but if the company could, uh, decided to, it could pay out that and stay put on the size it is now. Uh, EBITDA, though, is an actual gap term. Uh, gap term Generally accepted accounting principles. Sorry. By the way, Jim has a Chartered Financial Analyst certification. He is a CFA. I am not. <laughs> so, he really does know of what he speaks. Keep and, going. And I get... And I, Sometimes just uh, talk in gobbledygook. Well, acronyms are very acronyms. easy to settle into, especially when you have things like EBITDA and you yeah. don't want to say the whole thing every time. At least we're not in the military where they use them even worse. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> uh, so EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. You can get those numbers right off the income statement and calculate it very easily and very quickly. And so the ease of use for that, the sense that it is a, a cash flow number, um, makes it a very popular item to use during valuations. All right, so now let's bring that all together. By the way, we're about to get to the fun stuff, the big <laughs> winning stocks and what their numbers are, but I'm glad we're defining our terms up front and for many of our listeners, at least that one may be a new one and of course, uh, there are lots more things you could read on the internet to learn more about these including at fool.com or wikipedia, one of my favorite websites you can learn a lot more about this stuff. But Jim, that ratio, enterprise value over EBITDA why would I use that one? And what's a traditional kind of expected multiple there? So, this one is looking at the value of the company versus its cash flow. Uh, and since the company's whole purpose in life is to generate cash to, uh, for investors, uh, this is a, actually a pretty good ratio in that uh, you're looking at if I need to invest how, uh, $2.5 billion to buy that company. Uh, how much am I going to get back in cash every single year? So, what's what's going to be my cash uh, return on my investment? Okay, great. So, 
I'm going to now preview the five companies we'll be talking about, just to hype it up a little bit here, because these are some of the most fun companies and amazing stocks to have recommended and owned over the last 15-plus years. So, we're going to start with Netflix in 2003, when it was first recommended in StockAdvisor. Then, Intuitive Surgical, first recommended in Rule Breakers, 2005. We'll jump forward to Salesforce.com, ticker symbol CRM, first recommended in 2009. About a month later that same year, Mercado Libre in 2009 as well. And then we're going to close it all out with, well, a Johnny come lately compared to this list, The Trade Desk. First recommended, I was going to say 2016 because it's up so much. I thought it had to have been three years, but no, we first recommended it in 2017. So that is. That's the journey we're about to go on together. That's the adventure that we've chosen. But Jim, before we start with Netflix, can you just, and I realize I'm asking you to spitball here, but thinking about those three ratios again, price to earnings ratio, price to sales ratio, and enterprise value to EBITDA, what would be safe traditional metrics for each of those? What's a number that most people are kind of shooting for with, let's say, a P-E ratio? They don't want to pay above that for a stock. So, P-E and the EV to EBITDA generally run about the same level range. 15 to 20 has been kind of a historical level yeah, for those. Yeah, I think that's right. Kind of the market's average. Yeah, but the market's been running higher than then. Than that, and there's a lot of debate uh, out there about why and whether it's over overpriced or underpriced or, right. or whatever. But that's a good so, ballpark. What about for price to sales? Price What's a good ballpark there? That's that's trickier. If you're a retail, I probably wouldn't want to pay more than twice mm-hmm. revenue. Yep, two two x. Yep. Uh, but if you're an internet company or a a, a company where you can scale massively on, right. on just a small investment, you could get up fairly high. Um, into those low low double digits and still right. be decent. Which, by the way, a lot of people would say that is nosebleed. Don't pay those prices for those. But you're right; those lighter businesses to run often will trade at higher multiples of sales because, after all, it's easier to convert light business models into profit, even if profits are showing yet from from those sales. And by light here, we're meaning asset light. That is, the companies don't have to buy a bunch of equipment in order to generate those sales. All right, there we go. So, the past was all prologue. Let's get started. <laughs> Let's start with. Netflix. So for each of these, I'm going to lead off just by asking you, Jim, in a minute or so, what does this company do? Well, Netflix, if you have been living under a rock for the last decade, <laughs> is the leader in what's called over the top OTT or online streaming entertainment, video entertainment. And it's on demand. You can watch whatever you want, when you want, as long as it's in Netflix. And, uh, it it has no, and the the big selling point is it is ad free completely ad free and it's a monthly subscription uh, depending on the service level it's anywhere from I think eight dollars or so a month to about sixteen seventeen dollars a month. There we go. Now in two thousand three when it was first recommended and then several times in <laughs> two thousand four etc. What did we like about Netflix back in the day? Well, back then in two thousand three and two thousand four it wasn't over the top. It wasn't. Uh, doing online streaming at all. Streaming was just a twinkle, maybe, in Reed <laughs> Hastings' eye, the, the CEO, who's still the CEO today. Instead, what it was, you might remember those red envelopes that were going through the mail you all the betcha. time. You betcha. I still get them. I'm still on that service. I stopped mine a while back when they when I realized how thick the dust layer was on those DVDs. Uh, I appreciate that. And I, admittedly, I'm not sure I really used any of the DVDs. It's kind of like 
how I also don't sell stocks for the longest time. Even the losers, I just kind of keep sitting there. I'm like the last guy out on these things. Anyway, they also were a subscription model back then. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead of uh, you buying access to their uh, servers and streaming, you were buying access to having DVDs actually mailed to you from a central location, and you got to choose which DVDs. You could keep them for months, you could return them in days as soon as you watched them, and if you uh, had a had a queue of, of titles that you wanted, they'd send you the next title on, on your list. And yeah. So it was a great way. It, it, it solved a couple of problems, no late fees. Uh, it didn't require you to do anything more than walk to your mailbox to get the next uh, DVD rental, and most people stop at the mail anyway. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was a wonderful business model. It shifted the whole business model from those transactional and late fee based to that subscription, and it was a company that was using technology as a weapon right. in a blockbuster-driven world. Right. So Jim, for each of the companies, as I say, we're going to start with what does it do, then kind of why did we like it back then, but now comes the important section, laying out the traditional valuation metrics as they appeared when we recommended the stock way back when. Where were they then? So. Where was Netflix then, Jim, from a valuation standpoint when we recommended the stock? Well, the numbers I'm going to give you are as of October 1st, 2004, which Great. is the second time you recommended it in Stock Advisor. You recommended it first on May 9th the previous year, but then sold it in, in November after it had risen up uh, too fast, too soon. I think yeah, it went up about 150% in six like months, and I decided it got ahead of itself. So we sold, and it dropped back down, which looked really good. Although, if we just left that in yeah. place all the way through, we'd be even happier today, but we're still not complaining. So, so, as, so yeah. of, as of October 1st, 2004, the P.E. ratio was 46.8. The P.S., so that, that would be high. Yeah. Uh, the P.S. ratio, don't worry, it's higher today. <laughs> <laughs> the P.S., the price-to-sales ratio was 1.9, so decent. Hmm. And the E.V. to EBITDA ratio was 29.4, so again, a high, uh, high level. So I think the number most of us are going to fasten on there has got to be that price to earnings ratio 47 times earnings. Now, again, a lot of people who are learning investing or are coached or come from a traditional view of valuation would say I would never pay 47 times for this fly-by-night dodgy red envelope wielding <laughs> enterprise. That PE is what jumps out to me. The price to sales is interesting. That's really not a remarkable or nosebleed number at all, 1.9. No, not at all. That could really be because they were reinvesting a lot of their money, their revenue coming in, uh, back into uh, growing the business. And the way the accounting rules worked is that, that that particular type of reinvesting that they were doing would show up as lower income. And so that would boost up uh, a lower uh Denominator on the ratio would boost uh, would make the ratio appear higher. Mm -hmm. Yes, that that's absolutely right. Okay, good. Now, Jim, how is that done? And I, I hasten to add, of course, we did tape this episode on June 18th, so the actual numbers may have changed by July 10th when this airs, but probably not by that much. So that'll be true of each of the stocks that we quote you returns, Jim. How's the stock done? So all the numbers I'm going to give you for uh, performance are as of June 17th market close. Okay. Uh, Netflix from that October pick was up 14,930 percent, so up 150 times. Up 150 times the value since its price to earnings ratio of 47 at the start. <laughs> yep. And for comparison, the S&P. Well, it did pretty good. I mean, 2003 was not a bad year to be picking stocks, 158%. Okay, so it's it's way ahead. 
And I think that's about all we have time for for Netflix. You and I both love Netflix. We continue. I assume you continue to own your shares, Jim. Oh, yeah. So do I. And uh, I've given some away at this point. It's one of those great things. The charitable time of year, giving away appreciated shares, one of the best ways to give. I've also put my kids in Netflix. I hope you know, Jim. I don't think that you have kids at least yet. Maybe not ever. I don't know if you have an nope. announcement on the show. Okay, you're not going to have nope. kids, but. Had you had kids, I'm pretty sure they would have had Netflix in their portfolio, because I know you've been a specialist on this stock, covering it for The Motley Fool in our community for years now. About 15 years, yeah. Yeah. Spectacular. So, of all five of these companies, we love them all, but this is probably the one we know the best, especially Jim and his knowledge of Netflix, which I'm really grateful to highlight on this show. Well, it's not so much about doing a deep dive on any of these. It's the pattern recognition we get across all five. So, let's go now to stock number two, Jim. Intuitive Surgical, first picked in Rule Breakers in the year 2005. Jim, what does Intuitive Surgical do? Well, what it did back then and what it does now is pretty much basically the same thing. Um, so, they make uh, machines, quote unquote robots, that uh, allow surgeons to do what's called in minimally invasive surgery yep. uh, to a high precision. Now, minimally invasive surgery is not the invention of intuitive surgical. They're not the ones who did that. That came out about the 1970s, 1980s with something called laparoscopic surgery, mm-hmm. which is making a small incision, inserting a tube into that incision, and then inserting instruments uh, uh, that were controlled through like scissor-like motions uh, uh, outside the patient. So back in the 1970s, that's yeah. when it started, Jim. Of course, yeah. this is one of those bigger story arcs and one of the big technologies of our time. Really, minimally invasive surgery occurs through many contexts and many different products and services. And so, minimally invasive uh, allowed patient recovery to uh, happen much faster. You didn't have to make large incisions that took a long time to heal, risked a lot of infection, and created a lot of pain for the patient. So, it was a big step forward in in surgery. Now, what Intuitive Surgical did was kind of realize that the next evolu- the next major step forward on that was now possible with that technology. And they made a robot assistance to the doctors. And actually, not really robots, but, and here's my sci-fi reading coming to the fore, <laughs> um, but Waldos. And a robot um, is more like a self-moving item. Ah, so technically, even though I've said that Intuitive Surgical is the Da Vinci Surgical robot, and well, so does everyone. A lot of people say, but Jim, you are bringing your additional sci-fi <laughs> pedantry to the show, which is always appreciated. Pedantry is a word that has a highly positive connotation among rule breakers, at least on this podcast. So you're saying it's not a robot? It's a Waldo, and Waldo was uh, the name of a short story written by Robert Heinlein back in 1942. It was the name of a character who had. A, a real disease uh, that kept him bedridden and could only move a little bit. And so he was a genius. He invented these uh, instruments that where he could make small movements and attach to this remote item, uh, either make very big, uh, large movements or very, very tiny, tiny, precise uh, movements. And that's exactly what surgeons do with the Da Vinci Surgical if you will, robot, which is <laughs> that they insert their hands into a remote machine and then Operating right over the patient is something that is moving along with their hands right, and their yeah. moves, but it's totally separate from them. And it is not technically, you're saying, a robot. Right. And it's really cool. I've, I've operated one. Uh, for some reason, uh, this company set up a ro- uh, one of these uh, Waldo robots uh, in a mall uh, out near Dulles Airport. And I went out and uh, tried it. And you're, you're right. The patient's over here. With, with all these arms and uh, the little tiny incisions that the, the instruments get put through, mm-hmm. along with a camera. And the 
surgeon's sitting over at a desk with the uh, with the goggles on that uh, shows him what the camera is looking at, and he's making somewhat large movements, and the machine is translating those into very tiny and very precise movements. Unbelievably, far more precise with both its motion and its eyes, of yeah. course, than the human than than we human beings can be. Okay, so. I think we've established then, and, and forgive me, Jim, and the world, if I keep saying, even after this podcast, Da Vinci Surgical Robot, that is what they call it after all, but I get your point. All right, so, so what do we like about the stock back then? So back then, uh, it had no real competition. That was a big uh, selling point of the company. It was basically the, num- it was the number one player by far uh, in, in this. There have been a couple of small players since then. Uh, this well, held- the Mako Surgical yeah. was doing one, one version of that, and... Um, yeah. Well, Computer Motion was the company that had the rights and was suing Intuitive yeah. back in the day, back and forth. They ended up settling and kind of merging. But others have been in and around the space. Even Johnson Johnson today yeah. is thinking about it or working on it. Google has something. So there are other players, but Intuitive is the big dog here. Yeah, definitely the big dog. And they've basically made the uh, the Da Vinci better, more flexible, uh, more specialized in certain areas, uh, better vision. Uh, more a lot arms, more applications as well. A lot, lot more surgeries that it can be uh, used upon, and just basically expanded its uh, uh, its reach into as uh, many many different surgeries. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim. Well, of course, next we're going to get to our traditional valuation metrics. What was it looking like when we recommended Intuitive Surgical in Rule Breakers? So on th- March sixteenth, two thousand five, which is the day it was recommended, the PE ratio was sixty four. <laughs> That's high, even higher than Netflix. Wow, uh, the price to sales was ten point eight, just shy of eleven. And which for a manufacturer, which it is, because it has to make the the, the, the machines, an eleven price to sales ratio is pretty high, pretty steep. Yowzer. And an EV to EBITDA ratio. This is the price to cash flow, basically, yep. of forty six point four. Okay, so all of those numbers substantially higher than Netflix, yep. which itself was substantially higher, at least a few of those, than what normal people would be willing to, to pay for a stock. Uh, so I don't think we need to belabor this. It's enough, I think, to provide the numbers and the look back because Darren Pryor and your ilk, friends all, it's worth remembering, looking back, where were they then, what the actual numbers were, because, Jim, how has Intuitive Surgical gone on to perform from those nosebleed metrics? Very, very well. It's up 3,345% since then, versus the S&P's 146%. Okay, so it's a 34-bagger from its price-to-earnings ratio of 64 when we first recommended. Jim, I know we're going to provide some pattern recognition around all these at the end, but any reflections specifically about Intuitive and what we can take away from that company? I think this one got so good because it had, it it was the, the dominant player, and its marketing was very good. Uh, the idea of being operated by this space, this futuristic robot uh, with its arm, mechanical arms yep. hovering over the patient, appealed to uh, customers very much. I'm sorry, patients, which are hospital customers. Mm-hmm. And so hospitals wanted to appeal, appear that they uh, were up on the latest technology. And so that helped drive sales. And that, uh, yeah, the whole thing really worked out for, well for Intuitive Surgical. And that continues to be true today. I was just speaking to a doctor at Fool Fest talking about how they had just gotten a Da Vinci surgical robot. And people have been asking, why doesn't your hospital have one? So they kind of felt almost compelled to just keep up in the arms race of having impressive technology to have people come to their hospital, not somebody else's. So it, it continues. You know, another thing about Intuitive, I just remember, is there was a lot of controversy about whether this expensive robot is worth it. Um, there were some people just within the traditional field of 
well, prostatectomy, who say, hey, I do it by hand. I don't need the machine, and the machine's more expensive. I think they were not necessarily noticing that their patients were able to walk off of the surgical table like a day or two later out of the hospital and check out, as opposed to needing a whole week to recover from being cut up uh, by non-minimally invasive approaches. But Sometimes great stocks need to climb that wall of worry where there are a lot of doubters and they create worry in the marketplace. And then over the course of time, as that worry fades, people start coming in and buying the stocks and they're propelled higher. Okay, so Netflix, Intuitive Surgical, let's jump forward four years now. The year is 2009. The company, Mark Benioff, CEO and founder, Salesforce.com. Jim, what does Salesforce do? These guys offer something called customer relationship management, and this is a set of tools that companies use to track the deals with their customers, who's last talked to them, when their last sale was, how much they bought, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's about relationships, exactly. right? And you got to manage those relationships. And not only that, but as you know, Jim, and I think a lot of our listeners do, what's the ticker symbol for Salesforce.com? CRM. Customer Relationship Management. Keep going. So, um, and this was founded by a guy who came out of Oracle and basically reinvented uh, again. Saw the the opportunity of a new technology to dis- to do the same thing better and cheaper. Um, in this case, instead of uh, having all the tools and software and databases and everything else on uh, hardware located at company headquarters, and you had to have a dedicated technician to make sure it all worked, and software engineers and all this stuff, Mm. uh, which is expensive, both the hardware and the people, Benioff recognized that uh, the cloud was becoming, that is, hosting the data off-site, uh, was becoming much more useful, and uh, people could access it through a, an internet browser or specially designed software to connect to it directly. And so the companies would save on the expense of ha- hosting their own stuff, and they could uh, uh, just pay a monthly fee and get the latest version of the software all the time. Mm. And so they've been uh, growing customers like mad. When uh, uh, this, when Tim first brought this, they had doubled their customer base in two years uh, to forty-one thousand. I couldn't find a number recent uh, recently, but I'm sure it's on the hundreds of thousands of customers okay. today. And you've just referenced Tim Byers, who is one of our analysts, long time at Motley Fool Rule Breakers. And Jim, I remember when Tim was first pitching this to our team, uh, he was talking about this new thing, the cloud. <laughs> this is 2009, and cloud computing was its own buzzword and was just kind of coming into prominence. Today, 10 years later, it's ubiquitous. Everybody's getting in on the action, and how many SaaS companies are benefiting from the existence of the cloud. But I think in some ways, if we're talking about this next section where what do we like about it at the time? We liked the idea of cloud computing and this company using that to prosper. And you especially like the subscription business model of it. I mean, The Motley Fool is a subscription model. Netflix as uh, well. Netflix as well. Uh, that, that's a common theme of many of these. Uh, because the you can sell the same thing to more and more people, and all to uh, all Salesforce had to get was a couple more servers to host their uh, stuff, and they already had all the experts and all the hardware, and so it was no big deal for them, while it was a big deal for their customers, especially the smaller ones. Really high margins for those kinds of yep. businesses where to sell an additional widget it has a decreasing amount of cost to it. And so the more of those additional widgets you sell at lower and lower costs, it can really become a profitable business, which is indeed what has happened with this stock. So, Jim, before we talk about mm-hmm. how Salesforce has done since 2009, what were the traditional valuation metrics for CRM? Well, if you thought Intuitive Surgical 64 was high, <laughs> 
<laughs> CRM's uh, uh, PE ratio on January 21st, 2009 was 90. 89.8. A 90 price to earnings ratio. No one should ever pay 90 times earnings for anything, right? So the traditional uh, logic goes, yes. Okay, so what about the price to sales ratio for Salesforce in 2009? That wasn't so bad. 3.3, in which for a what we're now calling a SaaS company, a software as a service company. Yep. Uh, that's that's really pretty good. Uh, but the other big one, uh, the cash flow. Uh, this metric, is going to be still similar to the first. Uh, no, not actually. Ah. This one's uh, EV to EBITDA was thirty five point six. Oh well, similar in that it's a big big number, <laughs> but yeah, it's a small fraction of ninety. I right. Think that. But still quite quite large. Wow, Jim. Um, when you were first learning investing, some of the first stocks you bought, would you have ever yourself paid 90 times earnings for a stock? Not a chance. I would not have either. That's not how I was taught investing. That's not how I how I grew up thinking as an investor. Well, I'm awfully glad we'd changed our minds by the time <laughs> Netflix and Intuitive Surgical and Salesforce showed up. Because, Jim, how has Salesforce done since 2009 from that 90 price-to-earnings ratio? So, between that January day in 2009 and last night, uh, Salesforce is up 2,080%. Okay, so, so that's a, a 21 bagger. 21 bagger, amazing. Almost 22 bagger. And this is uh, Peter Lynch always called 10 baggers fantastic. This is twice a 10 bagger. And a spectacular kind of tentpole stock for the rule breaker service, in addition to Intuitive Surgical, which is, as we just heard, done even better. But both of them, again, united by this idea that they were, quote, dramatically overvalued, end quote, when we recommended them. And the sort of thing that many people are warned off ever doing or investing in. Now, note this was right near the bottom of the, uh, the Great Recession, yeah. which the market bottomed out in early March that year. So this was a couple of months earlier. So the S&P has done very, very well since then uh, by any traditional metric, up 248%. Yeah, more than tripled. Yep. But still well behind uh, great, great stocks like this one. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned that because that stock and the one we're about to talk about, number four, uh, both were picked kind of at the bottom of like a horrible stock market, uh, 2008-9. So, company number four is Mercado Libre. Jim, what does Mercado Libre, ticker symbol M E L I, do? Well, this one was introduced as the eBay of Latin America. Uh, you liked it because uh, it matched up buyers and sellers and took a fee uh, for doing that, and just like eBay did here in the, in the here in the states, and just like eBay, it had its own payment system, uh, Mercado, Mercado Pago. Pago. Yep, and uh, which was like eBay's PayPal, which was still inside eBay back then. Um, it had fast growth of the users. It was uh, at the time it was cheaper than a year earlier, but still looked expensive, which still kind of fit your rule breakers mentality. And uh, you, you, you guys particularly like the CEO founder, Marcos Galperin. Yeah, and my recollection is that I think Marcos went to Stanford Business School. And at, while at the business school, there he was, kind of coming up with the idea for Mercado Libre. I think he shared it with his professor, and I think his professor helped him get some of the initial financing, and I think the rest is history. If I have that slightly wrong, I know Wikipedia will have the truth. But, Jim, <laughs> this is a great example of another rule-breaker. And I think as we draw near the end, we'll be drawing some lessons, and I'll want to say at least something about that. But, Jim, Mercado Libre today is an even more fully featured company. Now it has the logistics kind of fulfillment part of the package as well. Yeah, so now it's also called the Amazon of Latin America, as well as the eBay of Latin America. There we go. And so uh, before we go into the performance of the stock, Jim, what were the traditional valuation metrics for Mercado Libre? So, shock, this is actually not badly uh, overpriced at the time. Uh, on 
And when you say badly overpriced, that's always tongue in cheek with quotation marks, air quotes around it. Well, compared to the others, this is not as bad. <laughs> Understood. Okay, so on uh, February 18th, 2009, it had a PE of 35, 34.7. Okay. Uh, price to sales of 4.7, which for what they were doing is not not outrageous. Mm-hmm. And a really reasonable uh, EV to EBITDA, that, that cash flow uh, ratio of 14.8. Okay. 15.8. And that's right right in the range that uh, traditionally uh, seems to be pretty good. You know, one thing to, to, to point out about those numbers is those numbers were obviously depressed and reduced by the time in which we were picking the stock, right? 2009. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how it did in 2008-9, but I'm guessing it had been clocked. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Anybody could look it up. Um, we're just not in front of a screen so, right so now. So, the numerator, the upper number, would have been lower and therefore making those uh, those ratios look better. Yeah. But, at the same time, this is a company that did have earnings, right? So, it's worth pointing out, even though this was earlier stage e-commerce and an earlier stage portion of the world with e-commerce, Latin America, uh, Galperin had already gotten this company profitable, which is pretty impressive. Uh, all things considered. You know, one of the five stocks we're not featuring this particular week was Amazon. And Amazon is a classic that uh, runs right with all five of these in terms of looking dramatically overvalued, in quotes, and being a spectacular performer. So, there's not room to feature every company that conforms to this mold. But uh, of the five that we're featuring, I think this one might be the one that looked, quote, most reasonable, end quote. So, Jim, how has Mercado Libre gone on to do? So from that date through last night, it's up four thousand two hundred eighty percent, and the S and P is up a very respectable two hundred seventy one percent. Right. So the S and P now almost quadrupled from that low low in two thousand nine. But wow, forty three bagger for Mercado Libre. A lot of that, by the way, has occurred just in the last year or so. Yeah, it's really shot up. A year ago, it was trading around three hundred, four hundred dollars. Today, it's well over six hundred. Yeah. So, um, and that's often true. The hockey stick, right? You have to wait uh, for a while. Sometimes ten years later, all of a sudden, the stock starts going crazy. Now, Mercado Libre has been an outperformer almost from the get-go, yeah. but when you really allow compounding to happen in your portfolio, and that means sometimes you have to look past temporary states of high, highly overvalued, right? Every one of these stocks on the way to being a ten, twenty. 3050 bagger was truly overvalued at different points and got knocked down by the market and yet look what the reward is if you just show some patience. Jim, any further reflections on Mercado Libre? Um, not much. It's been continuing to grow transactions at a, at a toward pace and I like that Galprin is still there running the show. I do too and I want to point out about these four we've already covered and the one we're about to do Every one of them remains an active recommendation today in either Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers, all under my umbrella. I really admire every one of these companies. I trust that they'll be winners going forward. And so it feels great to already have 10, 20, 30 times our money looking backward, which is, after all, the theme of this week's Rule Breaker Investing Where Were They Then? All right, well, we're about to head to company number five and then the lessons and takeaways. But first, Thanks to NetSuite for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with its free guide, 
Seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide. Seven key strategies, not six, not just two or three. Seven key strategies to grow your profits. netsuite.com slash fool. Now, Jim, I saw you chuckling a little bit as I did that ad read. I think it's just uh, slightly ironic and a bit humorous, to, at least to my sense of humor, that uh, <laughs> uh, a competitor to uh, Salesforce is sponsoring this episode. Indeed. And we love them all. And in fact, NetSuite was a great rule breaker stock before it got purchased by Oracle. Uh, but it was another one of those. We don't, we don't have that one prepped for this week, but I bet it looked really overvalued when we first picked NetSuite for rule breakers. All right. And here comes. In some ways, probably of all these companies, Jim, the best performer in just the last couple of years, because the Trade Desk ticker symbol TTD since 2017, as we will cover very shortly, has been a big time winner. But first, Jim, what does the Trade Desk do? This one's a little more difficult than others to explain. They offer what's called programmatic advertising. And this is a growing segment of total advertising spend. It's quite small now, and it's supposed to go up two or threefold over the next uh, decade or so. And Trade Desk is capturing a larger and larger share of that market, so it's growing really well. But what they do is they work with the advertiser buyers, those who are uh, uh, placing those ads in all kinds of online applications. Or bus wraps, even, sometimes, or right. billboards. Or it's billboards it's online, or, offline. It's programmatic. It's the whole program of yeah. advertising. And so, they, um, many of their competitors buy ad space and then sell that inventory to the advertisers at a slight markup. Trade Desk doesn't do that. They just uh, match the ad space that they think will their algorithms uh, say will do best for a given company. So they're partnering with the the ad ad buyer, uh, the one who's placing the ad, and therefore taking away that kind of uh, confrontational relationship. And I think that's leading to a lot of their uh, really high uh, retention rates of ninety five percent year over year. So in a sense, it's kind of cutting out the middleman. It has a platform where buyers can meet sellers over its platform. Right, and uh, it it matches up the best pairing they think possible based on the big data they have about, I want to find uh, uh, young uh, teenage boys who are interested in sports who might be willing uh, to buy a brand new pair of sneakers uh, and who like uh, watching on Netflix or whatever combinations mm-hmm. that might come th- come up with or their own AI might come up with that combination. And so by uh, making the ads more effective for the buyer, uh, the buyer is more willing to pay for that effectiveness. And so Trade Desk gets the revenue not from selling those ad uh, locations, but by getting a cut of the ad uh, of the company's total ad spend for the year. Yeah, so it's a self-service software platform. We like platform companies. Right. Um, you know, a good example would be like eBay developed its own software platform back in the day to match buyers and sellers of goods. And here we are, but you're managing your advertising campaigns. There are thousands of different channels you can choose from these days, even just within the internet or a given site, like where you want to be on a given page. So, right. so it's still an emergent industry, and this is an early stage player. But Jim, that's the trade desk, and what do we like about that? Well, one, we like the fact that is this is another one of those founder-led companies, uh, and two, that it is growing like gangbusters. Both the top line and the bottom line are growing uh, by 20, 30, 40 percent a year, uh, and it's generating a lot of uh, free ca- a lot of cash flow. Uh, it's 
just pumping out the money. It has a good relationship with its customers uh, with a really high retention rate. And the market itself is growing, and they themselves are growing faster than the market, Mm. so they're gaining market share. Yeah, and speaking briefly about that founder again here, Jeff Green, who he's just... He's he's younger than Reed Hastings, earlier stage company, earlier stage in life, but he kind of reminds me of Reed in the same way that both of them feel like the smartest guys in this case in the room in their industry. These are these are people who are kind of visionary and are out front of where the rest of the world is, talking really intelligently about where the future is headed and whether it was Netflix back in 2003 or indeed I think the Trade Desk starting in 2017. The the wind's kind of at their back, and in a way, it's they're generating the wind. Maybe yeah. it's just the hot air of their CEOs just talking smart <laughs> and changing the world in part through what they're saying and doing. Anyway, so Jim, before we get to the performance of the trade desk since 2017, I'm glad first of all we selected a recent company to remind our members it's not just about Netflix or Intuitive Surgical back in the day. This works just as well in 2017. 2019, I think, 2024. I think this is, these are kind of timeless conceits, the where were they then uh, model here. But, Jim, where was the trade desk then with the traditional valuation metrics? So you picked this on February 22nd, 2017, a little more than two years ago. Back then, the PE was actually, it wasn't. <laughs> they were losing money at the time. Uh, so no PE. No PE. Um, the price to sales was 6.6. Uh, which for a, as I said before, for a uh, online type of company selling the same thing to more and more people is a, a very reasonable price of sales. Not outrageous. Not outrageous. And EV to EBITDA, the, the cash flow ratio uh, against the enterprise value, uh, a pretty decent 20.8, 21. Call it 21. Okay. So, of all these five, this is the one company that did not have earnings at all, but the cash flow was coming in, and uh, and yet it, it was trading in a more elevated multiple. That price-to-sales ratio of 6.6. In general, if I'm seeing below 10, I, I often think that's not a bad deal for fast growers of lighter, um, asset-less business models. So, I, I think we really did kind of get a bargain for the trade desk in a way, there wasn't as much awareness of what it was. It wasn't nearly as well known as Netflix was even back in 2003 or Mercado Libre in 2009. Most people, I think, listening to this podcast today, unless you are an active rule breakers or stock advisor member, you probably have never heard of the trade desk. In fact, I spoke at my alma mater's business school just a few weeks ago, UNC Keenan Flagger, a lot of very bright people who love business. And I asked for a show of hands in the room of people who've heard of the trade desk and scanty. Hands were raised. So I think most of the world still in 2019 has never heard of this company. And so that probably helps keep its valuation a little bit lower than something like Uber or Lyft. Yeah, but if you're looking at it today, now that it actually has earnings, it doesn't have much earnings. And so that denominator is really small, which is going to boost the PE. The PE today is 128. 128. Now, this is a stock that I would feel comfortable buying today. It's an active recommendation on rule breakers. So some of the same logic. No doubt the stock could get knocked down this summer, fall, or the next year. Who knows? But we're always playing the 10-year game, not the 10-month game. So, we'll see. In this situation, I don't think it's going to get knocked down. I think the earnings are going to grow in. And that is another way that PEs are reduced. Not because stocks go down, but because earnings show up, and increasingly so. So, we'll see. So, Jim, how has the trade desk done as a stock? As you said, very, very well since it was picked a little over two years ago. Up 323% since then. 
and the S&P is up uh, just, quote-unquote, just 24%. Right. So, it's been a four-bagger, uh, spectacular, in just its first couple of years on the Rule Breaker Scorecard. I, I think we covered the trade desk pretty well. So, let's call it a wrap on these five companies. Again, we shared with you Netflix in 2003, Intuitive Surgical in 2005, Salesforce.com, 2009, Mercado Libre, 2009, The Trade Desk, 2017. We could have truly come up with 20 other companies that are all big winners that conformed to the same standards here. It's just we, we don't need that many examples. We didn't even use, as I mentioned earlier, Amazon. So, Jim, with all that said, I think we owe it to our listeners and to ourselves to think out loud just for a few more minutes about why this works, why going against the grain and paying up at levels that most people would think are insane, why that actually led not just to winning, but to some of the best stocks we could have owned over the last five or 15 years. I think this might be the most important part of this podcast. Basically, what your listener is asking is, these companies have done so well, and yet they've rarely been priced at a reasonable level. What is it that we're missing? And so, what what you and I are going to do over the next few minutes is is try to f- tease out some of those items that that may not apply to every situation, but uh, can certainly help improve your chances of finding those always overpriced, always a great investment uh, situations. So, Jim, as you and I talked about it off air, you and I each have maybe three points to contribute uh, in favor of explaining this world of investing to our listeners and what exactly has happened here. So, we each have three points. Let's 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 do about a minute on each of them and bring it all home. And Jim, I'd love for you to go first. So, point number one. So, I think the first commonality that these companies have, and that many of these um, outsized uh, investment companies have, is that they're very often founder-led. And... Uh, while being the founder is is great and does not always translate to being a great CEO, there's slightly different set of sets of skills. If if you can find that combination, uh, take take a chance on it because, just like you're the only one who's truly worried about your investments and the success of your investments, the founder CEO is really focused on getting his company, his idea, his baby to grow as much as possible and be as successful as he can. And often he or she. That person owns more shares than maybe anybody else. They certainly should be a large shareholder. If you see the founder selling off his shares, yeah, start looking. All right, that was point number one. Point number two for me, I'm going to say what I've said from the beginning of this podcast and indeed from the first book I wrote about rule breakers in 19, I'm going to say it was 99, although we wrote it in 98 because Simon Schuster takes him a while to get it out of the stores. Anyway, rule breakers, rule makers, and that is top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. And I'm going to say of each of these five, they really have been, in many cases still are, the top dog and first mover in important emerging industries. So, whether it was Netflix at the dawn of entertainment, especially streaming, or Intuitive Surgical with this crazy, I now know it's a Waldo, not a robot, but this crazy technology where the doctor's not even operating on you, he or she has their hands in gloves off to the side and minimally invasive, or we think about Mercado Libre just being the out-and-out leader. Um, We're talking about the leaders, and when you are that top dog and first mover, often you are worth overpaying for in the early days. All right, Jim, point number three. So, point number three, I think, is growth, and particularly revenue growth. Um, 
I don't I don't like companies that uh, grow their revenue and are cash flow cash flow negative for a long time because that revenue should pay for all the expenses you're doing. But if you got something that sells and you can sell it to a lot of people, you're going to bring generate a lot of revenue and that will uh, make you profitable and cash flow positive and that's where the success of the companies comes from. I mean Netflix uh, growing its a subscriber base. I mean we were excited when it got to 2.2 million <laughs> subscribers back when you recommended it uh, that October. Uh, and now it has uh, 150, 160 million That's not subscribers over the world. Yeah, yeah, in what 15 years? So yeah, top line growth is is really a big point. But do make sure that they do have a plan to get towards f- cash flow positive and net income positive. And you know, Jim, we don't use it anymore, but there there is a ratio we use called the PEG ratio that I'm sure some of our listeners know. The basic concept of it is you look at the price as a function of the growth percentage. So, the P-E ratio as a ratio to the growth percentage. Now, again, I don't want to go deep here. We're near the end of this podcast. But, you know, if a company is growing by 50% a year, you're probably more willing to pay 40 times earnings than if it were only growing at 10% a year. So, there is some relationship between the growth rate of companies and then the the willingness you are to pay up in multiples in earnings or sales. Right. So the, you take the PE ratio and and divide it by the estimated growth from the analysts. That's and right. So 50 times earnings on a 40% grower gives you a, PE, a PEG ratio, PE over that growth of 1.2. And so above one is supposed to be good, below one is supposed to be bad. But that has issues of its own. There's a great article by Joe Mager on fool.com that people could hunt up that lay out all the the basic the problems with that peg ratio. Yeah, but overall the, but the concept but the that concept is, higher is growth will be yeah. usually higher multiples. You'll yeah. end up paying up for these companies, and you're going to be happy often ten years later that you did. And I did start this podcast by saying that uh, markets do reward high growth with higher prices. Well put, Jim. Thank you. Okay, point number four. Uh, I'm just going to say that for each of these companies, these types of companies often. This is a, a phrase I've used before on the podcast a number of times over the years. You know, if that company is the Coca-Cola of its industry, I can't find the Pepsi. And I love it when I can't find the Pepsi. So even today, when I look at Mercado Libre, I don't really see a Pepsi to its Coke. I mean, you could maybe say Amazon was making incursions in Latin America, but not really with the same scale or or um, full feature of Mercado Pago and the logistics company and all the rest. And you know, you look today at Intuitive Surgical. I really don't see the Pepsi to that Coke. So when you're able to find that out and out leader, and there are no other real competitors, snap test win. That's true of many of these kinds of companies. And when you see that. Maybe Darren Pryor and friends, Darren, happy to call you out again. Thank you for triggering this whole podcast. Maybe you do want to buy that stock. Okay, Jim, along with the horse race callers, down the stretch they come. So, Jim, your last point, my last point, what's your point number five? My last point is that most of these companies are asset light. It's a lot easier to grow revenue if you can uh, have a small group of people, build a thing, and then you can sell copies and copies and copies of that thing to more and more people and not actually have to build more of these. Right. Not tangible copies, not intangible, tangible, intangible copies. Intangible copies. That's yeah. what we do here at The Fool. That's what Netflix does with its subscribers and its growth around the world. The only one on this list that really has tangible copies is Intuitive Surgical, but it has so many of other things that are great. There's no pep. There's not even a. There's not even a Dr. Pepper to yeah. <laughs> Intuitive Surgical's yeah. Coke. So, um, you might not have find all six of these items in, in there, but certainly having four or five of these will help. 
really good point. And so that leads me into my last one, number six, which is uh, well, it's the final trait of rule breaker stocks that we're looking for, and that is that they be thought of as quotes dramatically overvalued. That the media is calling them out that way. People who are serious-minded stock market analysts think it's crazy. You should never pay that much for these companies. That is actually one of the best buy signs that you and I can ever have. Because if a company has the other rule breaker traits that we talk about on this podcast, or some of the other traits that Jim and I have identified here with our six points at the end of this podcast, if a company has a lot of those and people are calling it out as dramatically overvalued, that means they're scaring all the other people off of that stock. People aren't buying that stock, but as the company proves out that it is an out-and-out leader, driven by a visionary, earning more profits with optionality and growing, all of a sudden, some of those skeptics are going to become shareholders. And those share owners are what propel stocks over the course of time as they climb the great wall of worry, as we say. So, as we wrap up, David, I'd like to share with your listeners a slide deck or a talk given back in October thirteenth, October of 2013 in Mumbai by an Indian investor who was trying to find a reason for a lot of this. Okay. Why are these companies so overpriced, yet they do so, so well in the marketplace? And this is by a investor named Sanjay Bakshi. This last name is spelled B as boy, A-K-S-H-I. Okay. Bakshi. I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sounds good enough to me. But the talk he gave is called, What Happens When You Don't Buy Quality and What Happens When You Do? And so he was trying to find out what what commonality are these uh, um, that many of these companies share. Uh, Walmart back in the day, Microsoft back in the day, Amazon its entire life, uh, and and even Netflix and uh, uh, Salesforce and all these. And he came to the conclusion that it was how much cash they're generating based uh, uh, as a ratio of uh, how much capital was invested in the company. And he wanted companies that were generating a goodly amount, a steady amount of cash. A goodly amount of cash, a steady amount of cash for a long time, and that he felt was a great way to identify winners with relatively very little cost. Yeah. So little invested capital, lots of cash, more cash showing up. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that reference. And yeah, if we're pointing in a slide deck, that's a good um, that's a good additional resource at a 101 level of learning for us, for Jim and me. We stuck maybe one click down below that, right there, I hope, helping you, whether you're a new investor or old, whether you were raised with a traditional, quotes, value mindset or or not, to try to identify behind some of the biggest winners we've had, and so many of our members have owned at The Motley Fool, what were those valuation metrics right back at that day? And while we're looking backwards, because the title is, Where Were They Then?, Jim and I have spent this time with you this week in order to convince you that it might be worth thinking about where things are now or next year or in the future as you make your stock selections and think about what's going to win. And even today, I would buy many of these companies because I think their their opportunities are still so much vaster than where they are today. So thank you again to Darren Pryor to call you out one more time. Darren is a fun mailbag item, and yeah, we listen to our listeners, and sometimes you inspire us to create podcasts that we hope share back and help. A quick reminder: this was taped in mid June, so some of the prices may have changed by the time this airs in mid July. At the same time, I believe Jim, you and I have just co-conspired to create 
a podcast that should stand the test of time because it's not really about where things are now. It's about where were they then, and then map that forward to where things are headed and making better decisions, sometimes contrary to how we were initially taught to invest. Jim Mueller, I really want to thank you. You put in a lot of extra time to look up those ratios and take us back to where were they then. Great job. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, next week on Rule Breaker Investing, I have a special guest. His name is Victor Hoskins. Victor is a Virginia businessman generally credited with being the guy who led the team to land Amazon's HQ2 bid. So many cities competing, but Crystal City here in Northern Virginia scored it. So I'm looking forward to getting to know Victor and him sharing some of what he learned and lessons for us maybe as entrepreneurs and business people. So you have that to look forward to. But again, for Darren Pryor and my friend Jim Mueller, I say thank you for joining us this week. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.